leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. made of the potential of the microbiome to address disease and promote wellness. While much of the therapeutic efforts in this area have focused on the microbiome of the gut, Azitra has developed a platform for selecting bacteria native to the skin and engineering it to produce therapeutic proteins. We spoke to Travis Whitfield, Chief Science Officer of Azitra, about the company's platform, why it may be preferable to apply bacteria to the skin that can produce therapeutic proteins where they're needed, and why some of the biggest opportunities for the technology may be in the health and beauty markets. Travis, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the microbiome, azetra, and how you're harnessing the microbiome to treat a range of skin conditions. I suspect many listeners have heard of the microbiome, but I think there's probably a tendency to think of it in terms of the gut and as potential treatments for gastrointestinal diseases. What does the skin microbiome consist of, and what role does it play in the health of the skin? Sure. So, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, the, the skin is the largest organ of the body and uh, it has an incredible surface area and interacts with the environment and kind of serves as the, the primary barrier uh, between you and the outside world. So, um, you know, in fact, there's, there's a ton of microbes on the skin. There's about a million per uh, square centimeter. Um, and you know, a lot of times, you know, when you think of the microbiome, you think of gut health, you think of yogurt, you think of, you know, oral probiotics. But, in fact, there's, there's a really large, um, you know, role of the skin microbiome health um, so it's, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, a, a large, um, you know, interface between the uh, person and the environment. Um, so there's about a million microbes uh, per square centimeter of the skin, uh, very diverse communities uh, consisting of, um, you know, bacteria, uh, fungi, and, and viruses, um, mostly bacteria, but there's, there's quite a few of the other players. Um, and it's really uh, kind of variable by skin type, uh, you know, you, there's uh, classifications based on moist skin, uh, dry skin, and oily skin, and each of those different classes of skin have their own microenvironment and, uh, you know, diverse microbes. Um, and each, each skin site, uh, differs between individuals. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, diversity and, and variability between people. And, um, you know, as soon as you have a, a disruption in the skin microbiome that, um, you know, 
doesn't necessarily cause a disease, but it's associated with a number of different diseases, uh, especially eczema, um, atopic dermatitis, uh, rosacea, uh, and, and a couple other skin diseases uh, that are pretty common. So a really big interplay between the skin microbiome and, and health in general. Uh, Zitra has developed a microbiome platform for selecting an ideal strain for an indication and then engineering it to deliver a therapeutic protein. How does your platform work? Sure. So the, the general idea that we had is that we can use microbes uh, to deliver therapeutically relevant proteins to the skin um, because um, that way you have a microbe that's delivering a constant dose of a protein um, that's getting deeper into the skin um, and it's delivering it constantly over time in situ, basically. So uh, that's, that's a, the, the broad idea and the goal of the platform we envisioned. And uh, we're using Staph Epidermidus uh, to, as our host um, and kind of the basis for this platform. And Staph Epi, uh, as we call it, is a very common skin control. Um, it's found on everyone's skin, and it's one of the more common uh, microbes. And there's been a lot of really good research recently about uh, the role of, of Staph Epi in the skin, uh, especially, uh, you know, it's anti-inflammatory effects and kind of... Uh, maintaining homeostasis on the skin. Uh, so a lot of really good properties of Staph Epi. Um, and we've engineered it to secrete a number of different human proteins that could be relevant for skin disease. Um, so, you know, we have a spectra that we've engineered in this plasmid. Uh, we can insert any gene of interest that we can imagine that's, you know, kind of feasible to put in the bacteria uh, to secrete a number of different proteins. Um, and so... You know, this is especially relevant not only in common skin diseases, but you can uh, secrete a structural protein or an uh, anti-inflammatory cytokine, uh, but also in uh, rare skin diseases where you have, uh, you know, a certain protein that's missing that, that's causing the skin disease or, um, you know, uh, missing that, that uh, is, you know, causing severe reaction, things like that. So, um, you, know, you can think of it anywhere from, you know, delivering a therapy to protein replacement, um, things like that. Um, so that's kind of the, the overall goal of, of the um, of the, the platform, and, and we've developed uh, specific iterations of that um, that can go into more detail. Well, when I think of the microbiome to treat a condition, I think of harnessing a, a bacterial strain or a colony of bacteria to restore something that's missing or interfering with part of a disease process, you seem to be using it more as a delivery system and in some sense a manufacturing system to produce a needed protein where it's needed. Is is that correct? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, instead of uh, delivering a topical, we can have the, the bacteria make it in situ. So we, we have, uh, you know, basically the bacteria themselves are the protein factory. Um and, uh, you know, the, it produces a, a reliable and, and stable amount of protein over time. It's, it's always making protein. Um, and we've, we've engineered uh, our system so that there's a secretion signal on the protein so that uh, the staph epi can excrete it um, or secrete it uh, right as it's being made. So uh, that way it gets out of the cell, kind of reduces the metabolic burden, I guess, on the cell. Um, and it gets into the skin. And then we've, we've engineered another uh, part of the protein that helps deliver through the stratum corneum and more deeply into the skin tissue to kind of 
deliver a, you know, more to the site of action. Why is this preferable to say producing the therapeutic protein itself and, and just <laughs> delivering that directly to the skin? Uh, sure, sure. That's, that's a really common question I get all the time. And sometimes we ask ourselves that, but, um, <laughs> uh, essentially, you know, first of all, uh, purifying protein in, in manufacturing is, is not cheap. Uh, it's very expensive to, to purify protein, um, especially if you're working with mammalian cells or, uh, you know, even yeast, uh, it gets really expensive quickly and you get a pretty low yield. Um, whereas our system, uh, if you're, you're just manufacturing uh, bacteria. Um, it's very cheap, and we've we've been able to show this with our manufacturer uh, in Europe uh, about the cost of, of making the the bacterial strains itself. And that's it's a really cheap solution. First of all, um, second, uh, we think that it would be more efficacious because um, instead of delivering a single dose of, of protein to the skin that would then get degraded. Uh, you know, the bacteria would make the, uh, proteins and continually be, uh, expressed and secreted over time. Uh, so that way, you know, you only apply the bacteria once, but throughout the day, the, they're making the protein, um, locally in the skin. That way you don't have to have repeat applications. Um, because a lot of times the skin has proteases that can, um, interfere with proteins and can degrade them really quickly. Uh, whereas this, it, it makes it at the site of action and, uh, continually does so. Um, so those those two um, questions. Um, and additionally, you know, there's there's kind of a synergistic effect um, with SATAPI, um in addition to the protein. So SATAPI, as I, I kind of alluded to earlier, has uh, a lot of really beneficial properties. Um, there's been a lot of incredible work at the NIH um, by Yasmin Belkade and others. Trudy Knight, who's a postdoc um, in her lab, did a lot of really cool research on SATAPI. Uh, they showed that it kind of bolsters the, the skin immune system. Um, you know, there have been other labs like Rich Gallo that have shown uh, that that be isolates that can uh, kill Staph aureus. And uh, there have been others that have shown that, uh, you know, it can help accelerate wound healing in animal models. Um, even there's a, a human clinical study in Japan uh, that shows that 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 can help uh, improve hydration in the skin, reduce water loss, et cetera. So, um, you know, all those properties are really beneficial that we're kind of adding um, into our, our system. Um, and then with the added benefit of, of protein replacement or protein delivery. So we see it um, primarily as a synergistic effect, um, you know, improved over just uh, delivering protein plus, uh, you know, the, the cost of goods and manufacturing issues I mentioned. And do you know how long after... Uh, it's applied to the skin, it lives and continues to produce the therapeutic protein? Sure, yeah. So we've, we've done a lot of work in kind of, uh, um, you know, building in some tools that can uh, control that time span. So, uh, you know, we, we do have the ability to make something can, that can colonize the skin forever. Um, and, you know, that, that might be nice, but in talking with the FDA and other people, you know, uh, from a safety perspective, we've tried to kind of limit the lifespan. And so we've engineered our bacteria that are actually oxytrophic um, so that it's, uh, we've knocked out a couple of genes um, in the, the genome of the staph FIB so that it doesn't survive uh, without the addition of our plasmid. Um, and so as soon as the, the, the bugs kick out the plasmid, which is in about one or two days, um, then the bacteria would basically die and we do have to 
uh, be replaced. So we've tried to kind of engineer it and tune it so that it's a daily application. Um, so that way, you know, the bacteria would, would make the protein over time and then start to die off about a day and then you replace it. I take it also the fact that this is a much lower cost manufacturing process opens up other markets to you, such as cosmetics and, and beauty supplies that, where you may have benefit, but uh, the costs are different than, say, producing a biologic. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's not quite as cheap as making yogurt, but it's not too far off. Uh, so, you know, we, we are talking with a number of different um, potential cosmetic companies that are interested in this. Uh, a lot of skin health applications, especially in dry skin. So, um, you know, that that would be with uh, a non-modified version of, of our staff happy that wouldn't be secreting a, a human protein. Um, but but there's there's a lot of uh, potential uh you know, plays there with consumer health and over-the-counter products, things like that. So it's definitely an area we're exploring. Your lead therapeutic, AZT01, is in development to treat eczema and ichthyosis vulgaris, a, a condition where the skin doesn't shed dead cells. What exactly is AZT01, and, and what does it do? Sure. So uh, I'll kind of start with what is eczema and ichthyosis vulgaris. So, uh, uh, eczema is, is a, a, a very common condition that a lot of people have, and uh, it's caused by, uh, uh, well, I mean, I, I think a lot of people know what it is, but it's essentially, you know, red skin, uh, inflamed skin, you know, a lot of patches, uh, really severe in childhood. Some Most people kind of uh, grow out of it, so to speak, but 10% of, of people, children with eczema uh, carry it into adulthood. Pretty Pretty severe disease. Um, you know, the treatment options are pretty poor. Um, you know, calcineurin inhibitors, uh, steroids, things like that. They have black box warnings from the FDA, some safety concerns with those. Um, so there's a lot of room for innovation in, in eczema. Um, and it's, it's caused by three major, uh, components where you have a structural protein, a structural defect in the skin, uh, often caused by a lack of filaggrin expression. Um, and filaggrin is, is uh, the protein that we've engineered our staff heavy to express for AZT01. Um, and filaggrin helps with uh, binding keratin filaments to the skin and sealing off the skin uh, to the outside world. So um, it helps retain skin moisture, um, helps protect against antigens and pathogens. Um, so when you don't have filaggrin, uh, you know, you kind of have a, a destructuring of the skin uh, leads to... Um, you know, potential antigens coming in, and then in eczema specifically, uh, you know, you have inflammation um, driven by a TH2 response. Um, and uh, unique to eczema, you, you often have uh, flares driven by Staph aureus. Um, so Staph aureus is a really common bug in eczema, uh, really can attribute to the disease severity, things like that. Uh, so that's eczema. And ichthyosis vulgaris is a, is a pretty unique disease where it's caused by filaggrin mutations. 100% of people with this disease essentially have a filaggrin mutation, and it's characterized by dry, scaly skin. You know, ichthyosis is uh, the the Greek term I think for for fish. Um, so it's you know, a scaly skin is is the the hallmark of it. Um, so in both cases, you know, we're, we're developing AZT01 uh, for. Uh, for these two indications where uh, it's that epi that's creating filaggrin. Um, and filaggrin is a pretty complex protein with 12 different monomers, but we've selected 
uh, you know, one that, that we think makes sense uh, based on some structural activity relationship studies and, and other uh, studies that we've done in our labs. Um, we've, we've engineered uh, our staff happy to secrete it. So the idea is that, uh, you know, basically in ichthyosis vulgaris, it's a protein replacement therapy, um, and then in eczema, you know, you have the combined effects of the anti-inflammatory effects of staph epi combined with uh, filagrin helping um, reestablish the skin barrier. What's the development path forward? So we're currently um, in preclinical studies. Um, we're talking with the FDA actively um, and working with our, our regulatory consultants um, to kind of finalize the the IND um, investigational new drug application that we would submit to the FDA, um, and we would do a, um, you know, several clinical trials in 2019. So we're hoping after, uh, you know, meeting with the FDA and, and securing the path forward from, from what they want to see um, in terms of safety and tox studies in the animals, um, then we would file an IND with the FDA and start our clinical studies next year. So. Uh, the initial uh, phase one study would be in healthy volunteers, followed quickly by a phase one B study um, in either or both uh, ichthyosis vulgaris and eczema patients. Um, and you know we're, we're always exploring you know potential partnerships um, with other pharmaceutical companies that would be able to take it forward after we're able to demonstrate uh, efficacy. But you know first is safety and then efficacy in these uh, human studies. You have another product candidate that's in development as a, a consumer product for rough, dry skin. This is actually the, the potentially large, largest market you're addressing in your pipeline. Is the expectation this would be sold over the counter, and will it need to go through a therapeutic development path? Yeah, so, um, you know, my, my background is kind of in drug development, so I've, I've been learning a lot about consumer health and uh, the cosmetic markets and the, the regulatory path for that. So um, for this, uh, our, our candidate would be, um, you know, the base strain of, of staph epi, that's an oxytrophic strain, um, that wouldn't be secreting any proteins. Um, and so that way, you know, it's, it's clearly differentiated between the therapeutic uh, uh strains that we're developing that express human proteins, and then this is the non-therapeutic strain uh, that would be developed for consumer health. Um, and the difference really, um, you know, from a really strict perspective is, is the claims that you make in the product. So for anything that's in the consumer health market, you can't make any health claims. You know, you can't say that it treats any type of skin, uh, but we're able to make general um, statements and, and uh, monograms is what they call it. So you know, helps helps uh, address the signs and symptoms of dry skin. So that would be, you know, the claim or, or the the statement that we use for consumer health products. And those are not regulated by the FDA. Um, you know, well, they they are, but they don't have they don't require uh, pre market approval. Um, they don't have to go through require, a trial process. Um, you know, they 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 do, um, and, and we will, uh, you know. Put them in, on humans before you uh, commercialize it. So we do. Um, we will have some some clinical studies, but it goes through an IRB process um, and not not have to be approved by the FDA. Um, so that's really the key difference there. Um, how, how might that product be preferable to what's on the market today? Sure. I, you know, I think that a lot of consumers are starting to be aware of the microbiome and. Uh, you know, some of these consumer products uh, damage the microbiome and, and aren't really 
microbiome friendly. Um, you know, a lot of them have pretty harsh chemicals or additives. Um, this would be different in that, you know, it's compatible with the microbiome. You don't have to disrupt it. Um, it can colonize your skin and it's natural, uh, safe. Um, and it's, it's, it's a different effect that we're seeing, you know, um, instead of a moisturizer, it's, it's kind of restoring the, the balance of your microbiome, um, type idea. As a living product, are there any unusual challenges from either a regulatory perspective or from the way this product would ultimately be stored and dispensed? Um, I, I, I would say that, uh, I guess unusual, yes. Uh, you know, of course, living organisms as a, as a therapy or as a product is, is definitely you know, a little more on the unique side. But um, in terms of the therapeutic uh, aspect and the regulatory aspects for FDA-approved products, there is a very clearly defined path forward, and it's called a, a live biotherapeutic product, um, or an LBP. And that path is very well defined from the FDA. Um, you know, there's the, they've issued guidances. They, they know what to expect, and they, um, you know, have, uh, you know, kind of all of the manufacturing um, expectations set. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty uh, solidified path at this point, even though it's pretty novel and there there are few or none uh, approved live biotherapeutic products in the, on the market. Um, you know, there, there are, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of trials going on and the FDA has, has issued a lot of guidance and input on this. Um, so from the regulatory perspective, we feel pretty good about it. Um, you know, from from the commercialization perspective, the the hardest challenge is going to be what the consumers will will want, and, and convincing them uh, that there's need and and you know uh, efficacy with this product. But in doing a lot of the market research that we've conducted so far, uh, we really feel comfortable and confident that consumers want this product, um, this type of product. They they need something different for their skin, especially for. Uh, for the um, pharmaceutical indications. Um, so there, we, we feel confident that there's a path forward both from the market need, uh, from the FDA's perspective, and we've, we've already worked out the manufacturing challenges. Um, like I said, the, the cost of goods is, is really low, and, and we've uh, been working with a wonderful partner in Europe um, that's helped us with through, through that. So, um, you know, comprehensively, you know, this is a new, new area for sure, uh, but we see a, a really... Um, you know, well-defined path forward, and, and we're kind of trailblazing a little bit here, but uh, feel confident about where, where we're headed. Travis Whitfield is Chief Scientific Officer of Azitra. Travis, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.